Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Cohen. We hope to make this podcast series self-sustaining, which it currently is not. You can help us by becoming a contributing member of the Embrace Everything community for as little as $5 a month. Join us on Patreon, and you'll hear from me every month with an update on how the latest season is coming along, and I often include audio excerpts of the new material in progress. There's a Patreon link in the show notes for this episode and on our website. I hope you'll join us, and thanks. Season 2 of Embrace Everything, The World of Gustav Mahler was made possible by a generous grant from the Kaplan Foundation. You can find a complete list of pieces and performers featured in this episode on our website, theworldofgustavmahler.org. After the soul-stirring intensity of the first movement of Mahler's Second Symphony, the composer felt the audience, and perhaps the orchestra too, could use a breather. In fact, he felt there should be a full five-minute pause before the second movement began, because it was such an absolute change from what preceded it. But before we delve into that second movement, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about musical flexibility and playfulness, which will help us understand what he's up to in this next movement, specifically the musical tools that Mahler uses to charm us and create a much more lighthearted atmosphere. I'm Aaron Cohen. I hope you enjoy it. In the second movement, Mahler turns to an important feature that occurs in many of his works, dance music, and specifically the types of melodies, rhythms, and musical effects he heard growing up in Moravia and Vienna. Composer and conductor Matto Coyne. Vienna is this crossroads between Western and Eastern European musical forms, and it has all these fantastic dance forms, and it's just this rich, messy musical culture. And I think Mahler was able to assume that by writing all these uh, these dance forms and folk forms into his into his music, Lendlers and waltzes and whatever, he was able to assume that the musicians knew exactly what that felt like. They had been to a dance where those dances had been played and they had danced them themselves and you know, it was the pop music that everyone had grown up with. And so a, a great deal of freedom can be taken. One of the main staples of that musical freedom is called rubato. I asked Carter Bray, principal cello of the New York Philharmonic, if he could explain rubato for me. Well, you're fortunate enough to be speaking to someone who just came back from Italy, so I can tell you that rubare is the infinitive to rob, and rubato is the past participle, robbed. So basically, it just means that you are... (laughs) You're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You take some time away from one part of the meter and you restore it, possibly, in a subsequent part of of the meter or the bar. Much of Mahler depends on rubato because a lot of his music is referential to folk music or popular music. We find rubato in many kinds of popular music, although we don't necessarily call it rubato. We might call it a lilt. Matocoin. Yeah, a lilt is a good word for a kind of subtle rubato. Um, and a lilt is kind of a, you know, a quick smile that somebody gives you. You know, they just pause and give you a little smile and then continue on their way. So there is that very subtle playfulness in good rubato, usually. I asked jazz pianist and composer Dee Dee Jackson how he defines a lilt. Uh, a lot of people will say, well, it's, it means, you know, it comes from a kind of a Celtic thing or... 
you know, when it applies to jazz, it implies just the idea of swing and da 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 da. And I don't know, for me, I always thought of lilt as the idea that every piece has its unique characteristic way of kind of phrasing and, and in the context of a recurring pattern, you know, like a recurring way of robbing time that just kind of keeps going and serves the, you know, the vibe of whatever the piece happens to be. You know, like the Chopin prelude, like da, 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 right? I mean, every, every part of it is like, the same lilt over that two-bar phrase for the entire piece, other than whatever you want to do to give it a little bit more, give and take beyond that. And, you know, it's more of a waltz feel, but often can be interpreted, since it's not an actual, you know, dance that people are dancing to, it's a classical piece, so you can kind of stretch it out a little bit, but you can still kind of imbue it with that recurring lilting quality as you interpret it. It's one thing for a single performer, a pianist, to continually adjust the tempo to his or her liking. It's another thing for an ensemble of many performers to do it together. Carter Bray. And that's very tricky to do uh, because the conductor can indicate it, but when you have 60-plus string players trying to sound exactly like one single violinist in a Viennese cafe, it's very challenging. So it takes a lot of preparation in order for it to sound spontaneous. In addition to rubato, another musical technique Mahler used is called glissando. It means gliding, glissando. This is when a musician slides from one note to the next. Mahler actually used glissandi in the first movement of his second symphony. Listen closely to the violins here. It's interesting to me because if you listen to old, early acoustic recordings of string players who were born in the 19th century, they do a lot of sliding around, a good deal more than you might hear today. Here's a recording of the great violinist Fritz Kreisler playing one of his own compositions in 1910. Matt O'Coin. The Vienna orchestras, the glissando highway is kind of just how they get from one note to the next, you know? Whereas for a lot of other orchestras, it's a very uh, occasionally used special sauce. But um, there's something very, very Viennese about that. You know, why, why uh, make a clean jump from one note to the next? Isn't it more fun to kind of slide your way there? Here's a famous glissando you probably know. the opening clarinet solo from Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue. Mahler very clearly indicated the glissandi in his scores. He wasn't going to leave it up to chance. Carter Bray. So when you see something like that, you really, you really lean into it and you really produce a very noticeable glissando that you might not play if it hadn't otherwise been notated. Certainly a Lendler, that is the second movement of the symphony, requires that kind of flexibility. Mahler was fond of the Lendler, a rural Austrian folk dance which he heard growing up. Now that we turn to the second movement itself, we hear a Lendler he had originally jotted down on a scrap of paper five years earlier, in 1888, when he finished the symphony's first movement. 
This melodic fragment became the theme of the second movement, which he finished in one week in the summer of 1893. Mahler said this, The second movement is a memory, a ray of sunlight, pure and cloudless, out of that hero's life. Here's what it sounds like. Listen for the lilt. For Mahler, this music had a very specific association. You must surely have had the experience of burying someone dear to you, and then, perhaps on the way back, some long-forgotten hour of shared happiness suddenly rose before your inner eye, sending, as it were, a sunbeam into your soul, not overcast by any shadow, and you almost forgot what had just taken place. Carter Bray says Mahler's glissandi are delightful to play. It's almost like he's providing us as string players with permission to do this thing that we're always dying to do. (laughs) Mahler will move away from this charming opening music and return several times. Each time he moves away, it's called a trio section. Music professor Marilyn McCoy of Columbia University. Formally, the whole function of a trio is supposed to be a contrasting section. So it's going to be contrasting orchestration. Instead of the whole orchestra, we have only the strings playing. And it's supposed to be in some kind of contrasting key. The Lenmer theme was in major. This is in minor. The character of it changes. You have triplets. Da, 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 da. Triplets will be one of the defining features of this section, continuing in the background, even when lengthier melodies begin to return. The transitions between the sections are very playful. Mahler is making his way back to the opening music, although it's not so straightforward. Each repetition is already a lie. A work of art, like life itself, must continually evolve further. Mahler enriches the opening music by adding a countermelody on top of the main melody. The countermelody is in the cellos. They kind of walk to the front of the stage, and then the, the opening melody becomes background. Two melodies are woven together effortlessly, and Mahler especially loved the cello line. The melody pours forth here in a full, broad stream, rather in Schubertian fashion. The term Schubertian refers to the composer Franz Schubert, who lived a good half-century before Mahler. Carter Bray says it's correct to call this part Schubertian, 
That's something that Schubert typically would have done, to add a high cantilena to an already established melodic line. The term cantilena means a lyrical melody. Just sticking to the symphonic repertoire for a second, a very good example would be the introduction to the Ninth Symphony, the Great C Major Symphony. Schubert wrote his Ninth Symphony in the 1820s. It begins with the main theme presented by the French horns. And there's a good example, by the way, of some music that should not be subjected to rubato. It should be played very squarely. But then after Schubert has presented that material, what does he do but bring in divided cellos and violas for the most... It's like suddenly he lifts a curtain and there's a beautifully set table with the most delicious meal you've ever seen. The opening French horn theme has been transformed into a cantilena cello line. And the cello lines weave around the viola lines. That's very Schubertian, and it's no accident that uh, both those dudes were, you know, from the same part of the planet. <laughs> Mahler and Schubert are both associated with Vienna, but also have bohemian roots. Getting back to the second movement of Mahler's second symphony, let's listen to the Schubertian part again with the glorious cello line. Mahler was very particular about the melodies he put together and insisted they sound organic, as if one melody grows out of the other. And that's the only way to create, in one grand sweep. It's no use playing around with some poor little scrap of a theme, varying it and writing fugues on it, anything to make it last out a movement. I can't stand the economical way of going about things. Everything must be overflowing, gushing forth continually, if the work is to amount to anything. We're almost ready for the second trio, another contrasting section. However, this one is different. Marilyn McCoy. The second trio explodes. This is the coming resurrection. This is the leftover anger from the first movement. Um, it's very threatening. There's a huge sort of brass explosion. It gets very, very tense, and then Mahler has to diffuse it, and he diffuses it by pulling the rug out from under it. That's kind of exactly how it sounds. 
Just as in the first movement, after the dramatic moments, the music opens out to something more serene. Again, as in the first movement, that serenity doesn't last. Once more, the triplets dominate, building towards a return to the opening music. Our next destination is a return to the main Lendler theme, although this time it's pizzicato, meaning the string instruments are plucked instead of bowed. In early performances of this movement, Mahler asked the violins and violas to hold their instruments like guitars and strum with their thumbs. Carter Bray. It's definitely uh, Mahler being playful. Tchaikovsky does the same sort of thing in the Fourth Symphony in his uh, scherzo music with the strings playing pizzicato throughout. Tchaikovsky wrote his Fourth Symphony in the late 1870s. In that symphony, Tchaikovsky's entire third movement is pizzicato. Mahler uses pizzicato in only one section of his second movement. It's presented as a variant. It's a way for him to give you a different kind of pleasure from the same music that you've just heard. And this section isn't easy. It's very difficult to play together. There are so many of you on stage in a rubato style with pizzicato. It's dangerous. Mahler uses this to return us to the Lendler section again, enriching the section for a third time. Marilyn McCoy. The three sections are parallel, but each time, like, there's a different melody that's a star. This time, the main melody moves to the wind section, and the new star melody is played by the violins. This music again recalls Schubert. Conductor Michael Tilson Thomas. Mahler, I think, uh, can be credited for the, being the guy who achieved Schubert's symphonic ambitions using the orchestral means of Wagner. Wagner expanded the size of the orchestra and increased the harmonic possibilities, musical developments that Mahler relished. And he's able to use all of this, coupled with this idea of the tie-in to song forms, the tie-in to simple dance forms, things rooted in the world of, quote, music of the people, unquote, in a way that makes it have great personal significance.
Mahler said all these melodies are variations on each other. They are more like ornamentations, paraphrases, and entwinements, rather than a subtle pursuit and reworking of the same cycle of notes. Marilyn McCoy. I mean, this is another really famous Malarian thing, is he just sort of said, you know, music is continual variation. If something's going to return, it shouldn't be the same way twice. But in this, in this lender, it's especially masterfully done. Organic musical composition. One idea is interwoven with the other, constantly branching out in an inexhaustible wealth of variations. And how choice and delicate the end product of this process of self-generation. 